All right, good evening, friends. All right, 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and that evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Thank you, Bridge. Please do keep your Bibles open. That last chapter of 1 John, I'll lead us briefly in prayer and we'll get stuck into it. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your word and the power of your Holy Spirit at work among us. We pray that now you would help us to concentrate, to set aside hindrances and distractions, and that we might sit in awe of your word and that we be transformed by it to become more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I just realised I don't have the clicking power. Oh, I do have the clicking power. There it is. Hey, Excellent. Brothers and sisters, syncretism is a word that I think all Christians ought to know. For us, syncretism means taking God's true revelation and combining it with other religious or worldly ways of thinking and living. And for Christians, it is a big problem. A classic example of syncretism 
is that when Christianity began to spread in earnest across Europe, both east and west, in the, from the 6th century onwards, Christian missionaries often came into contact with pagan villagers who believed, for example, in wells that had magic water in them, magic wells that had supposed healing properties. Now, some missionaries, rather than denouncing pagan superstition, wanted to entice and get on friendly terms with such people and, and pagan belief, so that rather than denouncing it, they just rebranded such things using biblical terms and biblical concepts, such that by the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, the medieval church had a whole bunch of rites and rituals that used holy water, even though no such thing exists or is prescribed in the Bible. There's an example of syncretism. The Apostle John, whose letter we've been studying for many weeks now, and which we'll conclude today as we look at the last chapter, does not use the word syncretism, but when he uses the term idols in that last sentence that on first reading just sounds like a haphazard thing that he chucked in there, keep yourselves from idols, in the context of the whole letter, it's this kind of thing that he has in mind that he wants to defend the church against. And what John has been writing in his letter is just as relevant to our church today as it was to his church in the first century. We can so easily and often unwittingly distort God's good revelation and therefore compromise the wonderful freedom that we have in Christ by combining God's truth with worldly philosophy or by combining Christian living with worldly living. And so this evening, our loving Heavenly Father, through the inspired writing of 1 John chapter 5, will indeed equip us to help us keep ourselves from such idolatry. And he'll do it by differentiating God's genuine revelation from versions that distort it by combining it with worldly philosophy. So I hope you're ready to get stuck into it with me. If you're a note taker on your handout, there's an outline on the back and we're at point one, love and obedience. The first and easy point to grasp is that genuine love of God, untainted love of God, always goes hand in hand with obedience. John writes from verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. Now, in verse 1 there, whether the child of God is Jesus or other Christians, I actually think it's other Christians, but it doesn't really matter because the next verse says it's, uh, it's about loving neighbour. That we believe that Jesus is the Christ, though, means, as we can see, that we've been given new birth by God. When a baby is born, everyone in the room is doing some kind of work and exerting some kind of effort and energy, especially the mother. In fact, the only person not exerting any effort is the baby. And so it is with us. Our salvation is given to us completely by God. Our supposed goodness or righteousness or religiosity has absolutely nothing to do with us coming to know the truth about Jesus, coming to know that he is the Christ. It is God's kind and gracious work. 
in giving us the forgiveness of our sins and adoption into his family that we get as we come to be born into Christ. And just like anyone in an ideal family at least, it's natural to love your parents and your siblings. I know some of you young ones think it's not natural, but it is in an ideal family to love your parents and siblings. And the telltale sign that we believe Jesus is the Christ, truly, and have been given this new birth is that we'll both love God and love neighbour. Now, that doesn't surprise us. We've heard that already. You love the Lord your God and love your neighbour as yourself. But the thing John pushes on and goes further with is that to love God doesn't just mean feeling positive toward him. That is how our world wants to define love. But that's not what John is going to let us off the hook with. It's living in obedience to him. It's more a verb than an action. Uh, Sorry, more a verb than a noun. Uh, To love God is to keep his commands. And John has to make this point because he knows full well that there will sadly always be those who pretend to love God or who even fool themselves into thinking they love God without actually having the slightest inclination of wanting to obey him. You see it every now and then when people say things like, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Or, I'm Christian, but I don't subscribe to any formalised religion. Friends, those are just virtuous-sounding ways of saying something like, I'm okay with God, but I'm not actually interested in doing anything he commands. I'll have God, but only on my terms. It's for people who, in the end, actually have utter contempt for God, but want to pretend they don't so that they feel a bit better. But for us who know and who love God, we've seen that the real burden, the real difficulty, is actually living in disobedience to him. We've seen that Jesus, at the very core of his being, truly is gentle and humble in heart, eminently approachable and overwhelmingly kind and gracious. And so we know, continuing in verse 3, that his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. We don't have the love of the world, which is just whatever makes you feel good. We We know it's actually better to live a life of obedience to God. We see something far better and more meaningful in obedience to God than in anything this fallen world has to offer. And so we turn away from the world and we turn to Christ. Now, of course, none of that happens on account of our own supposed goodness or religiosity. It's our trust in Jesus that God has given to us by which our souls now find rest in God rather than in this world, which is what John makes sure he teaches us. Continuing verse 4, and uh, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even, or better translation, that is our good religious observances and moral uprightness. That's what does... No, of course not. You can see why I highlight that. It is our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes. And remember, believe and faith, it's the same word. The one who has faith that Jesus is the Son of God. Belief, real belief, actual faith that's given by God and always coupled with obedience is actually the sole means by which we are saved and therefore we overcome 
the world. Now, friends, it may be the case that like a lot of Christians, myself included, you get a bit worried when you read that God's commands aren't burdensome. And yet you know, and I know full well, that, well, there often are points at which we kind of struggle to obey God's commands, if we're being honest. But at that point, I've got to say, it's really important to understand there's a big difference between something being hard and something being burdensome. Uh, I like to illustrate it with one of my favourite pastimes, namely recording. I record a lot of instruments and I love it. I love getting in the man room, playing the drums, playing the guitar, laying down tracks, seeing how things fit together. But you know, there are some times when you're working on one tiny little bit and you've done the fifth take, the sixth take, the seventh take, the eighth take, the 20th take, and you just feel so annoyed and frustrated and it's, you wonder why you're doing this, right? But then next week, hey Ben, you can have a day of recording. Yes! I love to do it. You see, the fact that it involves difficulty periodically is never something that makes me say, oh, I find it really burdensome. Yeah, there are times it's going to be hard. But we're not going to say, I, I hate it, I reject it, I loathe it, I find it burdensome. So it is when it comes to those who love God and obey His commands. Now, pretending to love God whilst not obeying his commands, is not the only form of worldly idolatry that as Christians we can be fooled by. There's another even more sinister form of idolatry that comes about by combining the truth of God's word with a very particular pagan philosophy. What is that particular pagan philosophy? Well, in very academic terms... It's platonic body-spirit dualism. But it's both more fun and, frankly, a lot easier, and avoids the academic terminology, to simply call it doing a Yoda. Yoda teaches that the thing that matters is not the crude physical part of our being, but the unseen spiritual component of the person. I'd be surprised if anyone here knows the quote that I'm thinking of from Yoda, but you might. Does anyone know? No, I didn't think so. Here he is. I'm going to put him up. Ah, so cute. Luminous beings we are, says, says Yoda. I mean Buddha. I mean Yoda. Not this crude matter. Not the physical, not the flesh, not the body, not the sea touch. That's, that's earthly, that's lame. It's the the unseen spiritual part of us that matters. That's doing a Yoda, known in academic terminology as platonic body-spirit dualism. Now, if we were to Christianize this view, like some of the missionaries did in, in, in Europe in the 6th century, if we do a good bit of syncretism and try and fit this in with God's revelation, then we'd rightly point out that as Christians, it's not the force but it's the Holy Spirit who does genuinely dwell within us. That's true, tick. So to follow the Spirit must be what matters more than other stuff and therefore well, we can probably do really whatever we like with our bodies because they're going to return to dust. That's what God says, yes. 
Food for the stomach, stomach for the food. God's going to destroy them both, so you might as well get as much bodily pleasure as you can. It makes no difference. It has no bearing on your true, unseen spirituality. Even worse, you might think that God's spirit himself, being unearthly, unphysical, gives superior revelation to what Jesus gave. You see, Jesus limited himself, didn't he? By being in the physical world with a real body. His revelation was, of course, the best it could be during its time, but now having given us access to the work of the Holy Spirit, we now have revelation far superior to what Jesus gave in his earthly ministry. Now, Jesus is step one, yes, but the Holy Spirit gives us a major level up as Christians. But then, of course, we remember that Jesus can't possibly be inferior to the Spirit. So you know what? It simply must be the case that in his earthly ministry, and especially in his resurrection, by which he was shown to be the Christ, Jesus must have only appeared to be human. In reality, in order to be truly spiritual, of course, Jesus could only have been in a non-physical condition as he was raised particularly. Now, friends, just in case, I don't want to lead you astray, this is all rubbish, right? You get that? Good. But these ways of thinking were present in John's day, and I guarantee you they are present in ours. So how does John help us avoid such idolatry? Well, he teaches, verse 6, that this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. Now, in John's writing, in particular, water is often synonymous with Jesus teaching about the Holy Spirit. You might remember, if you're a Bible reader, in John's Gospel, in chapter 4, he speaks with a Samaritan woman at the well and he speaks of giving her living water, streams of life come from it. In the same Gospel, chapter 7, he uses the same metaphor, living water, which we're told, just point blank, is Jesus referring to the Spirit, to the work of God the Spirit. And it's a sensible metaphor for Jesus to use because in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 36, God spoke of sprinkling his redeemed people with clean water and in the very two following verses, he says the same thing, but he says indwelling people by the Spirit. Water, metaphor for the Spirit. But, of course, Jesus' ministry wasn't only the ministry of the Spirit. It wasn't only spiritual in the sense of being non-physical. He came not only by water, but also by blood. And of course, blood in in, in this connection is a shorthand way of saying something like flesh and blood. In the Levitical law, we're told that the blood represents the life of the very physical animal. And they know it's really physical because they're about to cut it up and burn it. So yes, Jesus has a fully divine spiritual nature and Equally, he has a fully divine, human, physical nature. And to put the nail in the coffin, God the Holy Spirit himself testifies that that is the case. The Spirit testifies to the bodily ministry of Jesus. Continuing in verse 6, and it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. 
So, of course, you simply can't separate the revelation of God's spirit from the revelation of God's fully spiritual, fully human, water and blood, son. Hence, verse 7, to tie it all up nicely, for there are three that testify the spirit, the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. You cannot separate what God the Spirit says and does from what God the Son says and does. More specifically, you can't separate the subjective experience of the Spirit in the life of the individual, which is real, from the objective truth revealed in the teaching of Jesus to which that Spirit testifies. And in the five verses that follow these, which I'm not going to go through for the sake of time, John insists that rejecting this teaching means you actually make God out to be a liar. God the Spirit testifies that Jesus Christ ministered and especially was resurrected both as fully God and as fully bodily human. And so that actually has uh, some, some serious ramifications for us. What we do with our bodies matters because God will raise us bodily as well. And what the non-incarnate spirit reveals cannot ever possibly be at odds with what the incarnate son reveals. In fact, the role of the spirit is to testify to the person and work of the fully human and fully divine Son of God. And I'm pleased to say that later in the year, we're actually going to have three doctrinal sermons on the person and work of God the Holy Spirit. But I've seen this teaching in practice in my own experience. Some of you know this, many of you won't. It was many, many years ago, um, having been raised uh, as a Jewish believer, I thought all churches were the same. And so when I became a follower of Jesus, I just went to the first church that I knew. And uh, sadly, they had teaching that went along this line. Uh, there was one occasion where at the end of a church gathering, a bit like this, there were three lovely ladies, a bit older, and they came to me and they said, Ben, we think it's time that you get baptised in the Holy Spirit. Oh, what does that mean? That's interesting. And they said something like, you've trusted in Jesus, that's wonderful. When you die, you'll go to heaven. But it's kind of like you've walked into a room and that room is pitch black. But if you get baptised in the Holy Spirit, it's like the light's going to come on and you're actually going to realise God's purposes and plans for your life. And so we're going to stand around you and pray a bunch of rubbish. They didn't say that, but that's what happened. And you will fall down and you will speak in tongues, by which they meant some gibberish. Now, being raised Hebrew, I could sprout off bits of just Hebrew text from the Old Testament. They wouldn't know any better. And I was intimidated by those ladies. So I did it. <laughs> They prayed their silly prayers and I fell down and I yabbered on some Hebrew stuff at them and then they went away and I felt better. Anyway, but on reflection, it's deadly serious. It's, it's saddening. Saddening is the word. I still feel sadness for them because the thinking is actually not only wrong, that it is literally heretical. The heresy is when you deny the reality of God as triune, Father, Son and Holy Spirit and by their own testimony and practice they were quite literally dividing God the Spirit and his testimony and his work from that of Jesus Christ and that's, that's dreadful. Maybe you've had caught up in, in, in similar things. 
That's, it's really paganism posing as Christianity. They're just being syncretized together and it doesn't help anyone. You end up with two tiers of Christian. Well, I'm the better one because I've got the level up Holy Spirit thing and you don't, right? This is stupid. And that brings us to John's third and final way of making sure we keep ourselves from syncretistic idolatry. It's a bit of a catch-all, this last one, because he's coming to the end of his letter. Put simply, a telltale sign of a compromised Christianity, a telltale sign that you've been drawn into the teaching of what John would call the teaching, actually, of antichrists, is that you lose your confidence in approaching God. That's how you know something's wrong. Something's gone astray if you've lost your confidence in approaching God. And I don't just mean emotionally when you're down and depressed and God's harder. I mean when you, you're unsure. In contrast, we who know the truth are those who have complete confidence in approaching God. And that's where he goes. Verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. You see, if God's revelation is objective, if it's sealed in real time and place and matter by a real flesh and blood Christ, his fullest and final revelation, who had the Spirit of God upon him, well, then you can know for certain that whatever he has promised can only ever always be relied upon 100%. For example, God has said of his children, of Christians, that if any of us sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. We see that back at the beginning of 1 John, don't we? So if, for example, I prayed for my brother or sister who's who's said they've sinned in this way or that today, I can know that I have what I've asked for. I can know that Christ's blood forgives them. God has forgiven them on account of Christ. That's not just a fairy tale, that's legit true. God has said this and I can pray knowing I have what I receive because I know the truth. And that's exactly the example that John gives. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin and I'm going to jump in here and say a kind of sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. Now that's a mouthful given what I've just said beforehand, but hear me out on this. I don't know this for 100% certain, but I'm almost certain that John is deliberately using a tautology that's, that's saying the same thing two different ways, such that it's redundant. He's deliberately using a tautology in verse 16. Assuming that death is being used in the biblical sense of being cut off, separated from God, well then, by definition, it is absolutely impossible for a brother or sister to do a sin that leads to death. By definition, our sins cannot possibly lead to death. We fit in a second type. There is sin that does not lead to death, right? Why? Well, because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, whose blood cleanses us from all sin. Or even just look at this actual passage, verse 18, those who are born of God are kept safe by Jesus, who as to 
his earthly nature was born of God. So what I think John is doing here is he's saying, yes, you can 100% rely on God's revelation. If a brother or sister sins, i.e. if they do a sin that doesn't lead to death, why? Because they're a brother or sister. You can pray for them and they'll be forgiven. What about those whose sin does turn to death? Well, for that I've got a an illustration, again, born out of experience, and I suspect it's a common experience for, for many of us. There's been a number of times I've been speaking to someone new that I've met, and after a while, you know, you con- converse with someone you meet in some social circumstance, and what do you do for a living? I'm uh, an Anglican minister, I'm a Christian. And sometimes the way they respond is straight away to go, oh, I'm sorry for swearing, right? It's the first thing that people say, oh, I'm sorry, I sw-, because they've been swearing like a sailor in the conversation up to that point, right? And they think there's something really terrible about that because they're doing it in the presence of a Christian, which, you know, if I was having a bit of a sadistic day, I could say, yeah, that cuts to the heart, bro. But anyway, it doesn't. I couldn't care less. I mean, I care, but like, I don't like swearing, but that's not the point. Like, it's not my, I don't have any issue with the, the person, right? I'm not going to say, dear God, please forgive this person I just met for their swearing, that's not going to occur to me. That's a waste of prayer anyway, right? Stuart? What I am going to pray is, dear God, please make yourself known to this person. Please give them new birth. May they come to know Jesus as the Christ genuinely and have the joy of loving you and loving neighbour and therefore being obedient to you. That, that, I want to see them saved. Now let's say God in his amazing grace and mercy grants that sinner repentance. He gives them faith and they do come to know Jesus Christ as Lord. And then six months later, they're talking to me and they still swear like a sailor. Then I will pray that God forgives them for their sin and God will answer me because they are his child. You see how that works? Their sin does not lead to death. And as a follower of Jesus, I I hope you guys will hear this. I know you know it, but it's worth hearing. Your sin does not lead to death either. And we can actually be so sure, so confident that if we ask God to forgive, if you ask God to forgive my sins today, you can be 100% sure that he will because he's promised it. He's made it possible through the real body and real blood and the real spiritual water ministry of the Lord Jesus. But if you compromise the importance of the body and blood of Christ, for example, by syncretizing the gospel with the paganism of Yoda, then typically you lose that 100% surety or certainty that your sins will be forgiven. There are so many religious systems that make people end up trying to earn their salvation by doing good works, being good, moral, upright citizens. John steers us away from that error and he's done it in spectacular fashion in this last chapter, summarising chapter, by saying that really true biblical faith shows itself in love and obedience. Always the two go hand in hand. By teaching that true biblical faith always has a commitment to objective truth and Jesus' bodily ministry, water and blood, and I might say particularly his bodily resurrection. And therefore, the catch-all is that if you know the truth, you will have confidence in approaching God. If you don't have confidence, it's because you've been compromised somewhere along the line. Now, going back to those last couple of verses... Of course, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and I don't know everyone in the room, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then I do need to warn you that your sin does, in fact, lead to death. The wages for sin is death. And as you continue in your sin, so you continue in your state of being cut off from the eternal life that's only in Jesus, 
and you'll continue in that state both now and into eternity. What you need to do is to be born again. You need to put your trust in Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. By his body and blood that he willingly shed on the cross, he was taking that death, taking that separation from God that you and I deserve for our sins. And in his bodily resurrection, he was shown by God to be the Christ, the one who God has literally put in charge over every person and everything, and the only one who can give eternal life to sinners like you and like me. Look at the last few verses as we finish this letter so you can know what it is that we Christians have and enjoy. So from verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world, sadly, is under the control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Hence, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, why not make tonight the night that you turn and receive eternal life? In fact, if you know you're someone who has tried to combine the truth of the gospel with the empty philosophies of this failing world, why not make tonight the night you just ditch your idol and worship Jesus Christ alone? Maybe you're someone who's embraced the teachings of Roman Catholicism and therefore you're not actually 100% sure that when you die, you'll be with God in heaven in eternity. If that's you, renounce your idolatry and commit to learning what God, by his spirit, has revealed in the Bible alone so that you might gain assurance. Maybe you're someone who has embraced some form of the prosperity gospel, the gospel that tries to combine the truth of God's revelation with the empty values of this world that chases after health and wealth and success and victory. Well, if that's you, repent of such idolatry and embrace the true Jesus who suffered before entering his glory. Maybe you've embraced atheistic materialism which is usually the default stance of the average Aussie if they've got little or no religious affiliation. Well, if that's you, in years to come, if God in his kindness does something in your life that pierces through the veneer of security and stability, if he shows up your worship of self, your worship of money, your worship of family, and you realise actually how fleeting and frankly how unsatisfying the atheistic, materialistic life is, well then remember this face, remember this place. Come back here and with all joy and no judgment, I'll tell you how to find eternal life in Christ. If you're in any of these or any other situations in which you know you're not right with God, you don't have assurance, you'll actually have a moment soon when we fill out those connect forms that James will tell us about and you can actually ask if you want to have one of the staff get in touch with you to help you change and remedy that. But last thing, brothers and sisters, for those of us who are in Christ... What are some of the ways or philosophies of the world that we need to keep a careful eye on lest we start slipping into syncretistic 
idolatry. Well, at one level, we don't need to think about it too much as we get on with loving God, loving neighbour and continually growing in genuine spiritual strength by learning his word. Well, our love for God will mean we actually just naturally keep rejecting the things that compromise our freedom in Christ. But John does want to impress upon us the need to be kept from idolatry. It's why it's his last word. And so I've chosen just one area that I think can and does infiltrate our individual and our church culture. It's the worldly mentality, the worldly philosophy, if you like, of consumerism. In many spheres of life, especially for us who are wealthy, we basically pay in order to receive a service. Want to go watch a cool movie? John Wick 4 been and done by now. I wanted to see that. You go to a cinema, you spend in these day and age an exorbitant amount of money and the ridiculous price that they charge you for the food and you sit down and you enjoy your movie. Now, if you want to be a bit late, who cares? There's the previews anyway, you can just rock up late. If you're with a mate and you just want to chat a little bit, you know, as the movie's going, who cares? You can do that, you're the one that's paying, right? And we could so easily just start to bring this worldly mentality into our Christian life and conduct. Churches, thankfully not out of this congregation, but a lot of congregations, a lot of churches, just have this sort of tardy attitude where people just rock up late, halfway through the second song kind of vibe. Sometimes we do have a problem, oh, I just want to have a chat with my friend, I'm not going to listen to what's going on, I'm just going to start talking with the person next to me. Sometimes it's like, I don't feel like coming and I've got, you know, Stabo, you know what Stabo is, right? Subject to a better offer, S-T-A-B-O. So I'm never actually going to commit to something if just in case something better comes along. So with growth group, yeah, generally I'll go up there, but you know, if something better comes, obviously that'll be the first thing to go. Same with church. That's consumerist mentality. You know, I speak to growth group leaders actually. What's the number one discouragement for the average growth group leader? It's on the night, a couple of hours before when all the phone calls start coming, all the texts start coming, I'm sorry, I can't make it, I've got some stupid thing that I've got to go to. And that's the one to at least let them know. Right? Yeah, you've got to let yes be yes. You've got to work out, I've got to stand out different from my consumerist stabo culture. That can't affect my commitment to the body of Christ of which I'm a part and the family that I'm in, right? Every now and then you have people who leave church. Leaving church can be done for many good and right reasons. As a matter of fact, I've farewelled people from our congregation. I thought it was absolutely wonderful. I'm sad that the person's leaving. I don't mean like I'm not wonderful that they're gone, but for some wonderful reason, right? Yeah, we've farewelled all oh, the Rachel and Joel were the last one. Wonderful, right? Getting married, going off, doing it, serving it. There are some people, though, who don't leave church. They just stop attending. They don't say anything. We don't have any going away thing. We don't have because in their minds, this is just a service that I can show. There's no sense of actually serving the body or being a part of it. Sometimes you get people who say things like, I'm really disappointed that the church has done this or hasn't done this when they're a long-term member. You're like, wow, something really hasn't connected here. That's consumerism. It is not Christianity. And it's trying to syncretise the two and it always creates disaster. Another one is singing. I know there's some people that don't like congregational singing or they think they're bad at it and so they just don't want to have a part in it. I've got news for you if that's you. It's not about you. Congregational singing is actually there as a teaching ministry to one another. You can read that, Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.19. I don't care if your voice is bad. God doesn't either. He cares that you actually want to encourage other people. Do you not believe Jesus when he says you're part of the body and that you're a gift to the rest of the church? 
For goodness sake, don't sit there thinking, I'm terrible at singing, so I'm not going to. That's a problem. That's spiritual immaturity. You need to repent of that. That's consumerism that has infiltrated your thinking about your place in the family of God. I could go on, but I won't. I'm going to conclude the way John does. Dear children, dear children, dear, keep yourselves from idols. Amen.